Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au. So this morning we come to Genesis 10. Certainly not the kind of text that anyone would jump in to voluntarily preach. But it is nonetheless the Word of God, and it is the inspired Word of God that is sufficient to teach us things even from a text like this. This text is generally called as the Table of Nations. And as you look at this genealogy, this table of nations that are given here, what's interesting about this genealogy is it's very different from the one we saw in chapter 5. As we saw the, the sons of Adam through the line of Seth. Now that was a very linear genealogy in that it was just from one person to the next person and the number of years they lived and it just went from one person to another and you could easily track this down. Now, this genealogy is not uh, as linear as that one because the purpose of this is a little bit more different. What you'll see here in this genealogy, if you, if you just broadly look at it, you'll see some names of individuals and the names of these individuals are they're basically the, the founders of those nations, the fathers of those nations. Then you have, uh, if you uh, look at it, you'll, you'll see certain names that end with uh, ites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, and, or uh, those that end with I-M, the uh, Ludim and the Anamim and the Lehabim and uh, all those. So, so these are people groups. And then on top of that, you will also see uh, place names as well, as, as various people groups, as various nations are, uh, are gathered together in different uh, geographical areas. So really, the, this is just a, a genealogy of different ethnicities, uh, even as they've been arranged in different geographical areas. And if you count these names, there are 70 in total, 70 nations that are represented here. Now, this is not an exhaustive list of nations. Um, You may or may not be able to find uh, from this list of nations where your ancestry came from, but this is certainly not an exhaustive list by any means. But the, the, the 70 number, these multiples of seven, are important in the Bible because they, they represent uh, completeness or wholeness. So there's a sense in which this is a, a, a representation of all of the nations at the time. Or more specifically, the nations that were there in the world as they were known to Israel. Nations that would have some interaction with Israel. You could think of it as a, as a written map. And so which is why it's called as a table of nations, a, a, a list of nations. And what you see here is how these nations, they relate to one another as they came from one family. And beyond that, uh, by implication, what we will see here is what God's plan is for the nations. And then by further implication, what God's plan is for the nation of Israel and how God would achieve his plan in and through the nations and as well as through uh, Israel. And by understanding this, we, we get a sense of the heart of God for the nations and his plan for the nations. I've titled this morning's sermon as the family of nations. 
Because it, it really is a family that is then divides into so many nations. Let me just read the first verse as well as the, the last verse. That's verse 32. Genesis 10 and verse 1. It says here, These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And sons were born to them after the flood. And then again in verse 32, the end of the chapter, it says, These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies, in their nations, and from these the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. So this is, it, it's, it, it, verse 1 and verse 32, they, they frame this whole chapter. They frame this entire genealogy and it explains how the various nations came about through the three sons of Noah after the flood. And it's really a new section in the book of Genesis. Notice again, it says, these are the generations of the sons of Noah. And if you remember, we learned from, you know, previous, uh, in the last previous months, as we looked at the earlier chapters, that the book of Genesis is divided according to this phrase, these are the generations of. It started in Genesis 2.4, after the introduction of the creation of the world, uh, where then in Genesis 2.4 it says, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. So there it then went on to talk about, so what happened to the universe? What happened to the, the heavens and the earth that was created? Then again, in Genesis 5.1, we had the uh, generations of Adam through the godly line of Seth and what became of them. And then in Genesis 6.9, we had the generations of Noah, what became of that great man, that righteous man, Noah. And so now, in, as we come to Genesis 10, we come to the next section in the book of Genesis, where these are the generations of the three sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth what became of these three sons of Noah. And through these three sons, God's plan will move forward where they will multiply and fill the earth and various nations will come about through these three sons. Now Genesis 10 really, uh, aside from verse 1 and verse 32, which form that framework, as I said, it can be easily divided into the into three sections based on the genealogy of the three sons of Noah. And so that's the outline for uh, this sermon as well. So first we'll look at the descendants of Japheth in verses 2 through 5. The descendants of Japheth. Now just, just before we read that, what's interesting is that the order of names is also changed as we look at the uh, three sons. We saw last week from Genesis 9.24 that Ham was the youngest son of the three sons of Noah. And then Genesis 10.21 will tell us that Shem is the oldest of the three. So you have Ham who's the youngest, Shem who's the oldest, and so Japheth would be the middle one. And yet the order of the genealogy that's given in Genesis 10, we have the descendants of Japheth that's given first, then we have Ham, and then we have Shem. And the, there's a reason why there's an inversion of this order and why Japheth is given first. Because the descendants of Japheth are the ones who are the furthest away from Israel. As far as Israel is concerned, they're on the fringes of the known world. 
and the descendants of Japheth have little to do with the people of Israel, at least uh, in their near future. So there's a sense in which Japheth would be the least significant of them all. So they have the, the smallest section of them all. Then there's the descendants of Ham, and they are more significant. So if the descendants of Japheth are on the outskirts, the descendants of Ham are much closer to Israel. They're, they're really the immediate surrounding nations of Israel, and they will heavily interact with the nation of Israel. And then the most significant of them all are the descendants of Shem, and, and there's a natural flow by which then the descendants of Shem then will flow into chapter 11 and then the rest of Genesis will flow down that line of Shem because from the family of Shem will come Abraham and then through them would come Israel and then ultimately uh, the promised offspring Jesus Christ. So let's first look at the, the, the shorter section of the descendants of Japheth, verses 2 through 5 again. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Teraz. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Riphath, and Togarmah. The sons of Javan, Elisha, Tashish, Kitim, Dodanim. From these, the coastland people spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans in their nations. So remember, in Genesis 9, Noah's blessing on Japheth. And it was that Japheth would increase. And what we know is that Japheth had the most sons of the three sons of Noah. So in that sense, we will see how there was an increase, that, that blessing that came from Noah, that Japheth would increase, is seen here, where Japheth has the most number of sons. And also what we'll see is that Japheth and his descendants got dispersed the furthest to the most distant lands, occupying the largest areas of land compared to the other two sons. So there's a real sense in which even here, Japheth really increases because they occupy larger distant lands as well. And generally speaking, theologians would say that the descendants of Japheth are the Indo-European people. So when you think of the Middle East, so there's, on the one side, the descendants of Japheth, they would move eastward to, to Persia and uh, all the way up to uh, India. And then on the north and toward the, uh, the west, uh, that's basically uh, the European regions. These are the descendants of Japheth. Now, in case you were wondering, uh, so what about the Chinese? Do the Chinese come from Japheth? Uh, no, they don't come from Japheth's line, although some theologians think that perhaps the Chinese came from Ham's line or maybe even Shem's line. But the, they are not included in this table of nations. Like I said before, the table of nations does not include, this table in Genesis 10 does not include each and every conceivable nation. But it is representative as far as Israel is concerned of their known world and the nations that they would interact. So the sons of Japheth, you have first their Gomer, now, Gomer, they are people who, who settled uh, in the region of the, the Black Sea. And then from there, they went into Europe. So these are people who, who, you know, who went into France and they were called the Gauls. In Britain, they were called the, the Celts. 
or the Celtic people. In Spain, they were the Galicia people or, or the Galatians. And then in, in Wales, they were called the, the Kimri people. The other son is Magog, and it's difficult to exactly pinpoint where Magog is, but it's possibly, you know, a southern part of Russia or somewhere in that Eurasia sort of um, region. Then the other son of uh, Japheth is Madai, that's the, the Medo-Persian people who then finally will also move into some parts of India as well. So that's the, the Eastern movement there. And then there's the mention of Javan and uh, Javan are the people that are associated with the Greeks. And then there's Ashkenaz and that's probably the area of Armenia. And these are people then who moved into the area of Germany. And which is why even now, some of you may have at least heard where European Jews or German Jews are called Ashkenazi Jews, as opposed to the Sephardic Jews. And then there's Tashish. There's mention of Tashish. And and you know, that, that name probably rings a bell because that's where Jonah uh, was, went to. And Tashish is just basically modern day Spain. And then some of the other names that are uh, mentioned here, they're associated with Turkey and Cyprus and even Italy. So these were the Japhethites, the Indo-European people. So these were people who had large empires. They were the people who colonized. And even to this day, the descendants of Japheth would make up much of the population of the world. In fact, even you could say even Australia, when you think of it, yeah, they, they came from Europe ultimately. So the Japhethites, they did increase and, and, and they occupied large parts of the earth. But as much as they increased, still they were not very significant. Because they were in spiritual darkness. They did not know God. The the more distant they went into the distant lands, the more they forgot God. These Japhethites, they were away from God's people, the Israelites, who alone had the revelation of God, who alone had the law and the covenant and so on and so forth. These Japhethites, as they went and, uh, went and occupied large areas and colonized various areas, they forgot the God of their father, Noah. They forgot Yahweh. Yahweh, who alone could save sinners from his own divine wrath. So when you think of these people, generally when you come to the New Testament, They are the Gentiles. And then when you think of Paul, Paul who was the apostle to the Gentiles, these are the regions that he goes to on his missionary journeys. And then when you think of even Paul writing to the the Ephesians, which is predominantly a, a Gentile church, This is what he says in Ephesians 2, 12 and 13, where he says, remember that you, speaking to the Gentiles, the the Ephesian church, that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And so for those of us who are who are Gentiles, who are who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, this is this is true of us. That we who were so far away, distant from God, in spiritual darkness, we who had no revelation of God, now because of God's grace, Through the line of Shem, we have the privilege of knowing this great God through Jesus Christ. And we have the privilege of being part of God's family.
So that's the descendants of Japheth. Now we come to the descendants of Ham. So if the Japhethites, they, they were in the outer margins of the, of the world of Israel, the, the Hamites, or the descendants of Ham, they were the close neighbors of Israel. In fact, these were, most of the descendants of Ham were either enemies of Israel or they significantly influenced Israel but caused a lot of damage. And these Hamites, now the Japhethites, they went north and a little bit to the east and to the west. The Hamites went south. So they went to southern Arabia, the southern tip of uh, the Middle East, and the northeastern part of Africa. So northeastern part of Africa and just the southern part of the Middle East. And so these were troublemakers for Israel, the descendants of Ham. And, and, and remember, Ham was the disobedient son of Noah, the son who rebelled against God and against Noah. And so that rebellion is now seen particularly in his descendants, in the sons of Ham, as it relates to Israel. Now, verse 6 mentions four sons of Ham. First, you have Cush. Now, normally when we think of Cush, we think of Ethiopians, but um, theologians are, are divided on this. They say, now the people of Cush could be either in that area, the southern part of Egypt, or there, there was another people of Cush in Arabia as well. We can't be certain. Could be either of those people that are mentioned here. That's Cush. Then there's Egypt. We know where Egypt is. The northern part of Africa. Put is most likely Libya. And then Canaan. So just, uh, I just want to highlight just, uh, just maybe a few names here. Now we know of Egypt. We know Egypt is one of the great ancient civilizations. And the, the rulers of this uh, nation were called pharaohs. And pharaohs were considered as God themselves. And these pharaohs were the worshipped by their subjects. And we know even in the in biblical history, that Egypt was a big enemy of Israel. In the book of Exodus, the Israelites served under the Egyptians as slaves for 400 years. So that's one of the sons of Ham. Then in verses 8 to 12, we have the mention of Nimrod, who's, who's a son of Cush, uh, another son of Ham. And verses 8 and 9, here's the description of Nimrod. It says, Cush fathered Nimrod, and he was first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. Nimrod, a mighty man. Now that phrase, a mighty man, it's the same phrase that was used of the Nephilim in Genesis 6.4. So most likely, Nimrod was, was another giant figure, a strong, fierce, and, and violent person like the Nephilim were. And you know the name Nimrod, the name in itself means we shall rebel. 
So we begin to get a sense that this Nimrod was, he wasn't a good guy. He, 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 was, a, he, he was a bad guy. And where it says a mighty hunter, really it's not just you know, killing animals. He was really a mighty hunter of people. And where it says a mighty hunter before the Lord, it basically means that he didn't care about the Lord. That he would kill people. He would hunt people left, right and center and he would do it before the Lord and he would have no fear of the Lord. And he was a very famous man because he was just such a powerful person. So much so that if people became as fierce and as violent and and powerful as some of the people around became like that, then the people would look at that individual and say, oh, you're like Nimrod. Like Nimrod, a mighty hunter. So Nimrod, he was a, he was a violent, powerful, strong man who was basically living a life of rebellion against God. Who, who was just hunting people and devouring people. And really, he was the first person to build his own world empire or kingdom, as it says here. Look at verse 10 to 12. It says that the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Echad, and Calneh in the land of Shinar. And from that land, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh. Rehobothir and Kela, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kela, that is the great city. Now, two cities in Nimrod's kingdom I want to, Nimrod's empire kingdom that I want to point out. The first one is Babel. Did you notice that? Babel or Babylon. That's the ancient capital city of Mesopotamia. And this will be especially significant as Lord willing, we will look at the Tower of Babel or the Tower of Babylon next week. That Nimrod, he was the one who led the rebellion against the Lord. And he was the one who built that city of Babel. And even that Tower of Babel was built under his leadership. And really, in other parts of Scripture, Babylon, just not just as even a literal nation, but even then, it becomes a figure for uh, an anti-God culture or an anti-God nation. And then there's the mention of Nineveh too. That Nimrod went into Assyria and founded the great and conquered Assyria and founded the great city of Nineveh. And you know the Ninevites too. They, they were known as very violent and godless people. So this kingdom of Nimrod, it was a representation of, of human power and achievement and, and pride. And, and Nimrod was the, 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 the leader of this kingdom. He was the first world leader or the first emperor, you could say. And he was really just a, a, a godless dictator who hunted down people, devoured cities, built up cities by killing people and devouring various regions and then building cities and civilizations and empire. Why? To display his might and his violence and his glory. So he was really the, the, the first great leader. And as one, I like what one commentator says, that what the people really need when they're thinking of a leader is a shepherd leader. Yeah, what people need is a shepherd leader who would care for them and lead the, the people well for the glory of God. But what you see here is Nimrod, he's not a shepherd, but he was a hunter of people. 
He would use people and kill people and abuse people for his own fancy and his own glory. And really, Nimrod then would be the, the archetype of all coming godless leaders, prominent world leaders who would rebel against God. Nimrod was just the archetype of all those later leaders that would come who would rebel against God, world leaders that would come. And in fact, you could even say he was an archetype of even nations, godless nations that would rebel against God. And so as the Israelites are are hearing this, as they listen to this, they would have realized, oh, the two powerful enemies of Israel, Babylon and Assyria, Their capitals were founded by this wicked, violent, godless person named Nimrod, the son of Cush, the son of Ham. And in fact, as as biblical history progresses, it is Babylon and Assyria that would come and capture the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom of Israel and then take them into exile as slaves. So these were some of the sons of Ham. And the fourth son, Canaan, was no better. And remember, Canaan was the one who was cursed. And we read about the Canaanites in verses 15 onwards. Let me just read that. Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusites, and the Amorites, and the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Arvadites, the Zemurites, the Hamathites. Afterward, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed, and the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar as far as Gaza, and in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Zeboim, as far as Lasha. These are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations." Now what you see here in this description of the, the fourth son, the Canaanites, there's 11 descendants of the, of the sons of Canaan mentioned. 11 different types of Canaanites. Heth mentioned there in verse 15, that's the father of the Hittites. The Jebusites were the the Canaanites that originally resided in Jerusalem. And and so you see this big section devoted to the Canaanites and then even then later then even showing the the boundaries of the land that they occupied, the land that the Canaanites were given. And so we know as we move forward even as the Israelites are listening to this, that God specifically tells the people of Israel, commands the people of Israel to to conquer the Canaanites and to get rid of the Canaanites from the land because they're a particularly wicked people. Because of their influence, because of their lewdness, because of their idolatry, if they remain in the land, they will influence the people of Israel. So God particularly Uh, did not want anything to do with the Canaanite nations, the peoples of Canaanite. And what you see is that even in the days of Abraham, Sodom and Gomorrah and Adma and Zeboim, these are cities that were uh, destroyed just even in the days of Abraham. So these were the, 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 the cursed line. But again, as I mentioned last week, there, there are still individual people from here that are saved. So if you think of, um, as I mentioned last week, the Rahab, who was a Canaanite, she turns to Yahweh. And Uriah, during King David's time, he was a Hittite. But his name in itself would suggest that he probably knew Yahweh. 
So there are individual people that can be saved, but as a nation, as a people group, as a corporate people group, they were cursed and they were ultimately destroyed. So one, one thing just by way of application even, just thinking through it. You know, the sons of Ham, they were very powerful people, very capable people, very charismatic and, uh, you know, building civilizations and, and conquering people and all that kind of stuff. Many advancements came about through the Hamites. But really, when you think about it, all, all these nations come to nothing. They ultimately will have no significance so long as they rebel against God. And that should be a reminder even for us that, you know, our significance comes not in just trying to gain glory for ourselves, but our significance comes only as we turn to God and as we make much of Him. So with regards to the sons of Ham, the cursed line, the Canaanites, if you think about it, they don't even exist as a people group anymore. They, they, they're totally wiped out. They don't, they don't exist as a people group. But as far as some of the other sons of Ham, it, it's so wonderful to see that despite them, this long enmity going on between the sons of Ham and Israel, Isaiah later on will prophesy of a time when nations like Egypt and Assyria will turn to God. They won't be in rebellion against God anymore. They will turn as nations toward God. And then as a result of that, that they will be at peace with Israel. And this will all happen with the coming of the Messiah. So the sons of Ham, they're the ones who are more closer And as Israel is listening to this, they're beginning to understand, oh, okay, so these are most of our enemies or those who can have a strong influence on us. So that's the descendants of Ham. Lastly, we come to the descendants of Shem. And this this line is the most important line because the, the Shemites as we saw last week, are the Semitic people. The Shemitic are the Semitic people. And they are people who didn't go far at all. They just settled in the Middle Eastern area, from the north to the south of the Middle Eastern area. Let me just read um, about them from verses 21 to 31. To Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born. The sons of Shem, Elam, Asher, Arpakshad, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram, Uz, Hul, Getha, and Mash. Arpakshad fathered Shelah, and Shelah fathered Eber. To Eber were born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. And Joktan fathered Almodad, Shelef, Hazarmavet, Jerah, Hadoram, Uzal, Dekla, Obal, Abimael, Sheba, Ophir, Havila, and Jobab. All these were the sons of Joktan. The territory in which they lived extended from Mesha in the direction of Zephah to the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. So what we see here is the line of Shem, and Shem had five sons. Elam is mentioned as one of them, and these, are, these people become quite prominent and powerful right from the early days of Abraham. In fact, in Genesis 14.1, the king of Elam is one of the kings who come from, one of the four kings from the east who conquer the Canaanites. Then there's Asher. Asher is the father of the Assyrians. But as we read before, Assyria was conquered by Nimrod as he founded that city of Nineveh. 
And so the Assyrians, they become a mixed race. Then there's Aram, that's referring to Syria. In fact, one of the sons of Aram in verse 23 says is Uz. And if you remember, one person that most of us would know is Job. Job was a man who dwelt in the land of Uz. And then Lud, maybe associated with Asia Minor, but not certain there. And then there's Arpakshad, who is the chosen line. The chosen one through whom that promised seed would come. Now from his line comes Eber. Now Eber is a, um, an important name. In fact, if you notice in verse 21, it's, it says that where Shem is described as the father of all the children of Eber. You say, well, Eber, what's so significant about Eber? Eber is where we get Hebrews from. In the original, it is Ever, and the Hebrews are the Everites. So in Genesis, Abraham, as we progress on, Abraham is called a Hebrew. Then later on in the book of uh, Genesis, where Joseph himself is called a Hebrew. When you come to the book of Exodus, the, the people of Israel, the Israelites themselves are called the Hebrews. So Eber, that name, is what is given to the, the patriarchs as well as to the nation of Israel. So it's an important name. Now Eber, it says in verse 25, has two sons, Peleg and Joktan. And then the, the rest of the list in Genesis 10 is the descendants of Joktan. But the more important line is Peleg. And this is for two reasons. Because from Peleg will come Abraham. And that's all mentioned in the genealogy at the end of Genesis 11. As the genealogy of Shem is continued through the line of Peleg. So through Peleg... Abraham would come, and then finally Israel would come. So that's why Peleg is important. But there's another reason why Peleg is important. Because Peleg's name, as you see in verse 25, his name in itself means division. And the reason Peleg was named this way as division is because it was during his days, in his days, the earth was divided. Now what is this referring to? Now there's different people have give, given different ideas as to what this means as the earth being divided. But I take this to mean within the, uh, the context of it and what will come later to mean the division of the earth based on the languages, which, we, which is what we'll see in Genesis 11 with the Tower of Babel, where the earth gets divided into different nations according to their languages. And so this is what Peleg is pointing to, that from there there's going to be a division of the whole earth. And through Peleg will come the promised line. Now as we come to the end of this chapter, now there's two things that I want to point out to you. Two, two broad lessons that we can see here. And the first is this. The first is God's sovereignty over all the nations. Where God shows himself to be sovereign and that he himself is the God of all nations. 
Just turn with me to Acts 17, 26. Now we looked at this verse last week, but I want to bring this up again because it bears relevance even this week. Acts 17, verse 26. It says, and he, speaking of God, God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. You know, it's almost like Paul is thinking about the table of nations from Genesis 10 as he's giving his sermon in Acts 17. And what this verse is saying is that God is the one who made every nation. He's the one who determines what their boundaries are. Of how big they will be or how small they will be. What area, what land they would occupy. That God is the one who determines when each nation will rise and each nation will fall. He's the one who will determine all these things about the nations. God is the one who created humanity and he is the one who created the nations. And in fact, as we will see next week in Genesis 11 as it pertains to the Tower of Babel, you know, when it is God through judgment because of man's rebellion that God through his sovereign hand, divides up this family into different nations and different languages. God sovereignly brings this about and different nations are formed as a result of man's rebellion. God is the one who brings it about. So as God is sovereign, is the creator of humanity, as God is the one who created these nations, what we see here, that we can say, you know, on the outset, as we just look at this chapter in its entirety, we can say, yeah, God is sovereignly bringing about these nations and he's placing them in different regions after the Tower of after the events of the Tower of Babel. And so what we must understand always, even as we just look from this passage, is God is always the God of all nations. He's not the God of just one individual, how sometimes we can think of God that way because of that individualistic mindset. He's not just the God of one Person, he's not even the God of one nation, he is the God of all nations. And he's sovereign over all nations, he forms the nations, and he uses the nations for his plans. He is the God of all nations. The second lesson that we can see, just broadly as we look at this, is also God's care and plan for the nations. What you see here in this table of nations is that while ultimately all these nations came from one man and his family, these nations are divided. These nations are separated according to their languages in different regions of the world. How did that happen? Again, we will see that in Genesis 11 as it relates to the Tower of Babel. That gives the answer. Because this family, because of sin, and they rebel against God, that resulted in this division of family and these different nations. So this picture of divided nations, while they all came from one man and one family, is the picture of uh, separation of mankind from God. So there's a vertical separation, and there's a horizontal separation between man and man, between nation and nation. So then the question comes, so what's going to happen to this divided humanity? This, this one family that it was is now divided and it's become a divided humanity. What is gonna, God going to do with these divided nations? 
Is he going to abandon them? And really, another stark thing that you, you may or may not have noticed is Israel as a nation is not mentioned, while so many other nations are mentioned. Yes, the, the, the ancestry of Israel is mentioned, but Israel as a nation is not mentioned. So it's almost like it's, it's preparing the minds and hearts of the Israelites as they're, as they're thinking of God. Yes, Yahweh, the, the God of, of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. Our God, this God is also the God of the nations. As they see this table here. Oh, God is not just of our nation and of our ancestry, but he's the God of all nations. And as the book of Genesis continues, that line then starts narrowing down from all the nations. Then it goes on to focus on one man, Abraham and his family, and then on to one nation, the nation of Israel, who would become a blessing to the nations. So the reason why God then narrows that line, where he will finally choose Abraham and then Israel, is that through them, that salvation would come to all the nations of the world. And God would be glorified for it. See, God's plan of redemption, right from Genesis 3.15, when he said that he would send the promised seed who would crush the head of the serpent and reverse the curse, he wasn't just talking about Adam and Eve. He wasn't just talking about one person. He wasn't talking about just one nation. But he was talking about all the nations. He was talking about the entire humanity. That humanity from every nation and tribe and tongue would be redeemed. That God through Jesus Christ would one day bring all these divided nations together into one family. The family of God. A family that would be united and that would experience the peace of God and would be under the reign of God through Jesus Christ. And now when you think about it, God is in the process of doing that as the gospel of Jesus Christ. The, Jesus Christ, the, that ultimate promised seed as the message of Jesus goes out into the world, as, as we go out and preach the gospel to the others. And as people hear the gospel, and as people are being transformed, and as people turn away from sin, and as they turn to Jesus, and as they submit to his rule, as they submit to the loving rule of Jesus, and more and more people are getting filled in this earth, God's plan is beginning to be fulfilled where all the earth will be filled with his glory and the people will willingly submit to him and it will show the beauty of his rule. It will show the beauty of his glory. It will ultimately show the glory and beauty of God in Jesus Christ. I wonder if anyone listening this morning has not submitted their life to the rule of Jesus Christ. Let me tell you, friend, if you're not under Jesus, then the Bible says you are under sin and under the power of the prince of this world who is Satan himself. And let me tell you, they're cruel taskmasters who enslave you, who burden you, and who will ultimately lead you to your eternal ruin in hell. But let me tell you, Jesus is not a ruler like that. 
Jesus is not like Nimrod the hunter. No, Jesus is a shepherd. He's a shepherd who lovingly lays down his life for his own sheep. Jesus, the Son of God, he came into this world and lived a perfect life and then died on the cross for the sin of all those who will believe so that the sin of all those who will believe will be forgiven and they will be made right with God and they will be welcomed into God's family. Friend, if you have not submitted to the rule of Jesus, you can still do that today. Today is the day for you to turn to Jesus. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done on the cross. And if you believe, then turn away from your sin and continue to turn to Jesus and submit to him and walk according to his ways because that is the evidence that you truly are submitted to him and you truly believe that Jesus is King and Lord of your life. And if you want to know more about what it means to follow Jesus, please email us at connect at gracebiblechurch.org.au and we would love to talk to you further about this. But for those of us who are believers, praise God. Because Jesus, the loving shepherd, is our king. That we have been brought into the family of God And God is now currently gathering people from every tribe and tongue. And one day when God's redemptive plan is over, Jesus will return and he will one day reign on this earth and all his enemies will be vanquished. And all the people, all of humanity from every tribe and tongue will dwell in peace, And they will submit to the loving rule of Jesus. And everyone will see how glorious will be the rule of God through Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the sovereign God you are. You are the God who elects You are the God who is sovereign and you are the God who shows grace. Even as we look at the table of nations, we see how you are sovereignly ordaining various nations. And while in one sense the nations are divided because of their sin, We know that ultimately you chose one particular nation so that through that nation, salvation would come to the ends of the earth. Salvation would come to all nations. And Father, we are so thankful as your children that we are already experiencing that. But we long for the day when Jesus will return and physically reign from the throne of David. We long for that day, Father. But until that day, keep us faithful. Help us to be mindful of the various peoples around us. And help us, therefore, as you have commanded us, as Jesus commanded us before he ascended, to go out and make disciples of all nations and help us to have your heart for the nations and help us to get busy talking about the loving rule of Jesus and calling people to repentance and to turn to Jesus. Thank you, Father, for who you are. Thank you for your glorious word and and the truths uh, it reveals to us. And even the confidence that we have that you will achieve your purposes and that you still sovereignly rule over things and you are bringing out your plans. We thank you much for this. And we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ. And it is in his name we give you all the thanks and the praise. Amen.